This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, we continue our conversation on the 2020 presidential election with Brown University's Dr. Wendy Schiller. This the second installment of 2020 Pod here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast, and this is something we're going to continue to do on a recurring basis throughout this election year. Of course, new episodes of the Bartholomew Town Podcast every Tuesday and Friday. You can listen wherever you like to get your pods or head over to ripodcast.com or bartholomewtown.com. Okay, let's get right into it today, picking up the conversation with Dr. Schiller right after a very interesting Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary. Now the candidates fully focused on South Carolina and Nevada, the remaining candidates, that is. Hey, what do you know? It's a presidential election year. It's 2020 pod here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Let's have some fun right now. All right, so here we are right after uh, quite a run here of, um, you know, interesting, newsworthy situations with the Iowa caucus and then New Hampshire. Really, the big story is that the field doesn't look exactly like you would have expected it to, but when does it ever, I guess? Well, uh, let's keep in mind that the Democrats started with about 23 people running for president. So when you think about that number of candidates, and now we're down to really, you know, in terms of contenders, maybe five people, plus the sort of looming force of Bloomberg, who we haven't really seen how he's done electorally yet. So it's uh, it's winnowed down quite a bit. People act as if, oh, there's all this uncertainty. And Democrats have always had a lot of uncertainty in their primaries. I mean, we have to can't forget history. We have to remember uh, Bill Clinton uh, did not win New Hampshire. Barack Obama did not win New Hampshire. They both became the nominees. And in the end, in New Hampshire in particular, you know, Buttigieg and Sanders came out with the same number of delegates because of the way the Democrats divide up the, the votes to seats. So in, in my opinion, this is pretty par for the course for the Democrats. And mm-hmm. I think we're not going to know much until the end of March. I think we're going to know a great deal more then. It seems like Elizabeth Warren's momentum is just kind of stalled. But is there any chance to get that fledging campaign back on the ground and and getting interest, getting excitement again, and I guess the same for Biden as he stakes everything on South Carolina. Well, I think the the Biden and the Warren candidacies are really different stories. So the Warren candidacy was doing so well. She was great on the campaign trail, doing really well, particularly in Iowa, big crowds, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, The Medicare for all move, I think we've talked about this before, you know, going so early all in on Medicare for all and then not being able to explain why her plan was different from Bernie Sanders' plan. And Bernie had been out there sooner on that issue and rightfully so in the debate claiming credit for that. When she couldn't really come up with the plan, her plan, and she had been a, a candidate who had been selling herself on plans, on policy right. expertise, that she knew how to run the government, she was going to make everything work. I think that really hurt her. And it took her f- almost four weeks to come out with that plan. And then when she had to defend the plan, she kind of d- danced around the issue of raising taxes on the wealthy to pay for it. Uh, whereas Bernie's right out there. You know, he says, look, I'm going to raise the taxes on the wealthy. Here you go. But uh, San- uh, Warren tried to you know, get around it. I just think it, it really hurt her credibility. And I think people who were progressive, maybe who wanted a female candidate, maybe said, you know what, she's she not the real deal. She may not have good campaign judgment. And that was the other clue, I think, that was reminiscent of Hillary Clinton for decisions like not campaigning personally in Wisconsin, for example, in 2016. I think people got a sense, uh-oh, does she have the kind of judgment that will run a successful national campaign for president? And these sorts of um, negatives hurt her from a lot of different sides in the party. And the the real progressives, quote unquote, I think they just went back to Bernie. And then other people said, well, if I want a woman, Amy Klobuchar is looking pretty good. Right. And that's something that you sort of called the last time we did this, the rise of Amy Klobuchar. And that's something that 
when I was watching the Iowa returns, lack thereof, I suppose, she walks out on the stage and I immediately tweeted, what a brilliant move by her people to get her out in front of a national audience not saying that's the reason she's surging, but it certainly didn't hurt. Uh, you're pointing out something so important, paying attention to the primetime TV clock. People pay so much attention to cable and other news outlets, but when there's a big, exciting primary, a lot of people tune in around 9 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Eastern time, to see who's winning or listen to the commentary. And if you can get your face out front in that that hour, that hour and a half, you do get a lot of really good free publicity. You know, people who are good at that were Trump. Trump in 2016 understood sort of the cycle, who watches TV. TV win. And so that was a really good move on her part. I'm not sure she can make it all the way through the end to get the nomination. Uh, I'm not positive about that. But because she's another viable woman, you know, these pillars for Warren just crumbled. Mm. I I just don't see any path for her to regain those voters. You know, once you've moved, it's hard to get you back unless Bernie stumbles for some reason. Which, you know, even if he stumbles, I think his core supporters will stick with him. Yeah, other than maybe health that's the only thing that could I or or some scandal we've never heard about from his mayoral days or something like that. Yeah, in Burlington, Vermont, right? Right. Joe Biden, let's kind of go back to that and I guess zoom into Mayor Bloomberg. Of course, he was here just like a week ago. I was at that event. There's some protesters, disruptors. It was basically though, most people were enthusiastic. It was sort of a who's who of the Ramundo world, if you will, and and uh, affiliates um, inside the room. If the Democratic Party somehow puts Bloomberg as their nominee, are they essentially admitting to the world, hey, look, you know, Chomsky 101, Democrats and Republicans, one party, the business party, you know, are they essentially saying to that quote unquote far left base, you don't have a home with us? I don't think that's the signal the party wants to send because they need every vote they can get. Bloomberg has a challenge, and the challenge is he spent a phenomenal amount of money, you know, about $35 million a weekend in the South, particularly in southern states and some Midwestern states, and he's advertising like crazy. And he's trying to persuade the Democratic Party, but also African Americans in the Democratic Party, that he will be better than Trump for them. And, you know, unemployment has fallen dramatically in African-American and Latino communities, particularly among uh, young men, 16 to 25 in the African-American community. There's a lot of ways in which the economy is pretty good for everybody, and including uh, typically underrepresented groups. So this is a hard argument to make, especially when you had policies that, uh, like Stop and Frisk in New York City that uh, singled out men of color and um, was ultimately abandoned, obviously, by Bill de Blasio So when he became mayor. So I I think that's an uphill battle for Bloomberg, and I'm not sure you can pull enough suburban independent voters uh, in places like Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, around Detroit, the the areas that the states that Trump won, to make up for the loss in turnout among African Americans. And that's why we got to pay really close attention to the upcoming South Carolina primary and also um, all the primaries in March, is not just who they vote for, quote unquote, as a block, but do they turn out? What's the turnout level? And the reason is that when people turn out for a primary, they're already registered to vote and they know where the polling place is. So they will vote in the general election. The higher the turnout in the in the primary season, particularly among groups that are core and essential to Democrats, the better the chance the Democrats have. And so Democrats will be extraordinarily worried if particularly in turnout in the South where high concentrations of black voters isn't very good. Interesting to note that Trump himself had an extremely high turnout in the New Hampshire primary, like 125,000. That's shocking. I think it's 
it was by far, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was by far the most an incumbent had had in ages. What does that say? Is, it, is that just that diehard base just using this as an opportunity, such as like if your team's in the Super Bowl, you know, here's a chance to get together and experience it? Or are these people that are saying, no, I want to make a statement? I think they're trying, the Republicans are trying to show that New Hampshire's competitive again, you know, that it's not going to just go blue. And I think that's a pretty smart move on their part. Uh, so, you're, you know, you're seeing uh, things heat up, particularly in the Senate uh, races in some of these same states. Uh, in New Hampshire, Gene Shaheen is the incumbent, and uh, Corey Lewandowski was the president's uh, former bodyguard slash advisor, was going to run against her, but chose not to. And I thought that was interesting, whether it was a personal decision about his viability or whether he was reading the tea leaves and thought New Hampshire's just not winnable against a, a female incumbent or a Democrat who's, who's popular. So I'm not sure how that plays out, but I think that Trump is just going to spend the next, you know, 10 months getting everybody out the door. You know, just literally, don't forget, it's a tough election. You know, Trump could suffer a little bit from the same problem Hillary Clinton did, which is that people might assume he's going to win, and particularly in his party. And if they do assume he's going to win in some of these key swing states with Democratic enthusiasm to get, you know, him out of office, that could be real trouble for Trump. So I think he's really trying to say, listen, this is still a battle. Before moving to, I guess, as part of the thought of moving to South Carolina and, of course, Nevada, the Yang gang, these, you know, notable factions, they were they were present in, in every conversation at some level. Where do you sense they're, they're going to end up? Because they could kind of go Bloomberg or Bernie. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I think Bloomberg, if he does well enough in some of these primaries and starts to look quite viable, I think you're going to start to see people who think about the economy in the party thinking to themselves, OK, if I'm worried about the economy, then putting up a billionaire businessman who's been very successful and also New York was did very well under Bloomberg. I think that might be something people strategically start to say, this is the best shot we have against Donald Trump. Now, Bloomberg has liabilities beyond, you know, securing African-Americans support in the Democratic primary. Um, he He's very strongly pro-gun control. He's funded an organization called Every Town for gun research. And he has run ads, you know, basically saying um, for gun control. I think that's going to be very hard in rural communities, particularly in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, he happens to be Jewish. He'd be the first Jewish uh, presidential nominee and the first Jewish president elected. I'm not sure that's a liability, but I'm not sure it's an asset. So I'm not sh- I'm not convinced that in the general election, these factors that really run deep with people uh, are going to be overcome by his money. It's fascinating to watch that play out, though, as he enters here in this sort of non-traditional method to see if he can somehow pick off, I don't know, Biden's camp and, and eat up as much of the uncertain basis he can. Yeah. One last thing about Bloomberg is that he's been smart to focus on uh, health care. And the reason he's smart to do that is you notice if you pay attention to the Trump administration, they backed off repealing health care and Obamacare. They understand that in 2018, the Democrats did extraordinarily well in the congressional elections running on protecting Obamacare and protecting health care affordability and availability. So I think they understand this is this is not a winning issue for them. There's a lawsuit pending on the constitutionality of the Obamacare mandate. And they, they, uh, the Trump administration has asked the Supreme Court to put off the case until after the election. 
because they understand that if Supreme Court rules that it is unconstitutional and they blow up Obamacare, that's going to be an issue that's going to be very difficult for the Republicans to handle. And it could cost Trump his presidency if people think they're going to lose their health care. So this is an interesting strategic play. This is why Bloomberg is playing up health care. And this is why Trump is playing down health care. This is the Bartholomew Town podcast. Gut instinct right now. Who do you, who do you think is the strongest candidate on the Democratic side that can not necessarily who can beat Trump, but who do you think will end up with the most influencer support, I guess? I think Buttigieg, depending on how he does in the South, but Buttigieg has some legs. And the reason I think that is that he's pretty good at fundraising, better than Klobuchar. And he presents a very reasonable, articulate uh, option for a lot of people who are a little nervous about how far left Bernie is and a little nervous about how wealthy Bloomberg is. And he presents sort of a really nice middle and he's young. And I think the idea that he's not experienced enough versus sort of the face of Washington right now, both male and female, is is older, you know, really older, you know, 74, 75, 80, and Biden is 78, and Bernie's 78, or Biden will be 78 this year. So when you think about that, you know, a lot of people under 50 are saying to themselves, well, you know, we usually like a younger president, Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush too, I mean, Clinton, Obama, Jimmy Carter when he got elected. So this, I, I do think Buttigieg has a chance to capitalize on the sort of hunger for somebody younger. Interesting stuff, you know, and he's got a name that is easy for everybody who's way on the outside of this, you know, to remember and think about. I mean, I was at White Electric the other day and and somebody, I overheard somebody, somebody asked me a question about, are you doing something with a New Hampshire primer or whatever? And somebody who's a smart person who has, seems to have a great sense of the world, um, asked, oh, wow, this is... Uh, is this the election year? You know what I mean? Was, you know, the, yes, this is the election year. I mean, so there is this sphere of people that are not paying attention at all. Either they're so discouraged or they just never cared, but somehow they'll remember Mayor Pete. Maybe that's enough. Yeah, Mayor Pete <laughs> versus Mayor Mike, right? I guess, and so, right, yeah. And Amy Klobuchar standing on stage, and she will actually now stand on the stage with Bloomberg because he'll yeah. be in the next debate. Uh, I, I think that's about the experience question, and she's done a good job. It's funny, you know, David Oxford on Twitter after not the last debate, the debate before that, um, two debates ago, was criticizing Klobuchar for emphasizing her Senate record. Uh, I passed 100 bills or, you know, probably co-sponsored and sponsored given how long she's been there. But And I tweeted back and said, no, I mean this is called a Senate record. This is a, this is a record. This is a record of accomplishment. And she's a woman, and she's touting that she can get things done. And I think that's a smart strategy on her part because she's going to run up against Bloomberg. Will say what he did in New York. Bernie, who has Bernie's shtick, he has, didn't do very much as a senator. He hasn't done much in thirty years legislatively, but he certainly brought issues of great concern to people to the forefront of the American politics debate, and he should be credited for that. So that's where you fit yourself. You know, are you competent? Can you run the country? And, and Pete Buttigieg sounds good, but he's the mayor of a very small town, city, uh, sort of like Providence, small town, city. And when you think about that, what is he going to say he's done? And I, I do think that will weigh, that will, that will distinguish Klobuchar's legs. You know, can she really go toe to toe? You can see her on the stage with Trump in your head. You can sort of say she could take him on. Sure. But Hillary Clinton won almost all the debates against Trump and lost the election. So this is, this is complicated. But I, I also think that people, as you point out, the economy is good. And the way I think about this is that imagine being like just really, really, really exhausted for eight years. You know, we haven't had an economic hangover for eight years. 
And so when you think about that, once you go into 2016, 2017, things get better. People stop worrying about getting laid off per se, except for manufacturing where they're closing plants, where they are laying people off. But nonetheless, lots of other sectors are hiring. You know, there's jobs to be filled every day. That wasn't the case for eight years. And now people want to enjoy that. They want to go on vacation if they can. They, they want to send their child to the school of their choice or college perhaps, uh, or take care of their elderly parent. And they can in a way that they didn't feel they could a couple of years ago. That is a very tough sentiment to break through on the part of the Democratic Party and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know things are good, but he's bad. Right. I think it's a very tough climb. It's going to be fascinating. Really is exciting. All of a sudden became interesting in another level, I guess. Yeah. You know? I mean, Biden, you know, we should switch to Biden, right? Yeah. So what happened with Biden? <sighs> Biden was doing really well. I think the debates, he was good in some of them, and then he was stumbly in others. And I'm not talking about sort of a speech patterns or stuttering or anything like that. He just sometimes forgot something or, you know, so sometimes he was good. He seemed to warm up as debates went on. But again, you miss that nine to 10 o'clock hour in a debate. You're in the 10 to 11 hour, different audience. So that's a harder uh, way to convey your message. And he looks frail. I mean, when you look at him on the campaign trail, the man's been through a lot. He just looks frail. Bernie is the same age, had a heart attack, and looks yeah. in better shape. Yeah. Or at least is more energetic on the debate stage. And I think towards, towards as we got to Iowa, that started to take the toll on Biden. People started to see Bernie is super energetic, Warren is energetic, Klobuchar is energetic, and Biden seemed on the frail side. And I think people were speculating, can he make it through the campaign season? How will he look on television against Trump, who for you know you may like him or not like him but the guy looks vibrant every time he talks so i think that started to wane on people and the concern was even if nothing happened with hunter biden his son that was the risk of impeachment if you let impeachment go nobody really remembers who hunter biden is you do impeachment everybody knows who hunter biden is and and you just wonder well what was the story was there a story and i think it hurt him a little bit not as much as Hillary Clinton and Benghazi in emails, but it certainly hurt him a little bit. And these things combined. And as Buttigieg got better on the campaign trail and Klobuchar got better on TV. Yep. And, you know, he also called a, a woman a dog-faced pony soldier on, you know, and that just amplified enough, right before the New Hampshire primary. That just amplified, I think, a sense that he's part of an old guard and it's time to move on. Probably that drift to Pete or Amy. Yeah, it's funny though, but Bernie Sanders, again, is exactly the same age. So sure. the idea yeah. that, you know, but Bernie Sanders hasn't been part of the establishment because he hasn't really legislated, he hasn't done anything. So Biden's done so much, and that's a record that, you know, can come back to haunt you. I also thought that um, just teaching class last spring and asking the students what they thought of different candidates, that the only way that they know, young people know Biden, really, is as vice president. And, you know, vice presidents don't do that much. Older people know Biden as a very active senator on judiciary and foreign relations and very active for about 15 years in the Democratic Party, but you're, that's much older. So there was a gap, sort of like, okay, who's this guy again? What has he done? And then any gaffe he made that seemed, you know, innocuous at the time, particularly sort of hugging people all the time and touching women uh, appropriately or inappropriately, younger people said, wait, wait, you shouldn't have been doing that. Whereas older people are like, well, that's Biden. Right. And I, I think he got caught. He got caught in that sort of gap in the generations that knew him versus generations that don't know him. The coverage, the television coverage, do you feel that it's been fair, balanced? I got the sense that I was watching NBC News Now, their digital stream. Chuck Todd was on there. I got the sense that they had no interest in talking about Bernie Sanders' base of support, more so interest in talking about the reasons why 
the scenarios why he wasn't a credible nominee, adding together all the moderate quote-unquote candidates and their percentages against yeah. Sanders, really not leading with the story that, hey, Bernie Sanders won this, and there are, at least in terms of popular numbers, there's a base behind him. There is a base behind him. This is the key thing, again, going back to turnout. The thing that will win this election November 3rd is turnout on both sides, Republican and Democrat. And for Bernie, this is the question mark. I think people are assuming the independents and the Republicans that voted for Trump the first time, who thought, well, he won't be that bad. He'll get the economy okay. He'll cut our taxes. And he turned out to be, amongst some of those people, much worse than they thought, although good on the economy. To pull them out of the Trump camp, either have them stay home or even vote for a Democrat, which I'm not sure they would do, but at least stay home and not vote for President Trump in the key Midwestern states and places like Arizona and North Carolina and Minnesota. To do that, you have to reassure them that somebody's going to come in and not raise their taxes. That's just the simple calculation. You have to weigh that against Bernie mobilizing new voters, maybe younger voters, although we don't see those numbers changing as a percentage of registered voters. Very little under Obama, but for the last 20 years, it stayed about the same. 48% of people under the age of 30 vote. Unless you get that up, you can't depend on them to win. But African-American turnout makes a difference. You know, under you know, Obama and Clinton won with significantly higher, uh, particularly Obama, higher African-American turnout, and it was lower in 2016. If Bernie can show in these primaries in, in March, particularly in the South, that he can pull some African-American voters, remember, young African-American voters, anybody in that category in, that may give him more traction. In other words, people may say, well, he might be able to mobilize the entire Democratic Party base. If women would forgive him for what he did to Hillary Clinton, a lot of women who liked Hillary Clinton hate Bernie Sanders. They think he cost her the election. I'm not sure that's accurate, but I think he certainly pointed out some of the flaws in her campaign. So will they go back to Bernie? And that's the hesitation. And the media is terrified because Trump is going after people in the media. Trump is going after the media as an institution. So the established people in the media are really, you know, petrified he's going to get reelected. And then they think, "Uh uh-oh, they're trying to sort of help the Democrats make a choice. I think it's pretty clear. I think you're absolutely right. They're really pushing, particularly MSNBC, among others. I think CNN's trying to stay a little bit more neutral. But I think you look at the major headlines of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, you're saying the same thing. Moderates trying to save the party from Sanders. You know, Sanders could be Trump, Theoretically, But if we see that black voters don't vote for Sanders in the next six weeks in any of these primaries, that's a signal that that's probably not going to happen. Last question, kind of zooming back here to Rhode Island. Governor Raimondo is endorsed, was the first governor to endorse Mayor Bloomberg. She's now a co-chair of his operation. Does she fit in? I mean, there's always been speculation. Oh, Dan McKee is going to be the governor in 2020. At the end of 2020, he'll be sworn in in 2021 because... Ramundo's going to go work from the Treasury or be a vice presidential. That's been floating around at some levels for years. Now it might be more practical, though, if somehow Bloomberg is the nominee and wins. I mean, Ramundo likely goes to D.C. Well, you know, a lot of people are going to, you know, this is a long way off. And uh, I, I wouldn't, if I were Ramundo, I wouldn't hedge my, you know, bet the, bet the House on Bloomberg winning the nomination or the presidency. Uh, but I, you know, Gina Ramondo served as the uh, the chairman of the Democratic Governors Association for the last two years, and she's been talking to a lot of governors around the, the country, Democratic governors, and clearly they are concerned from what they see in their own states that Bernie can't do it, you know. And so I don't think she would have endorsed Bloomberg so early right now had she not had 
had that background knowledge from all these other colleagues she has around the country in the Democrat Party. That she's a smart woman. This is not just sort of waking up in the morning and deciding to do this. And clearly coming out early and being co-chair of his campaign exposes her nationally to a lot of people. So even if he doesn't win and she doesn't get to go do something, I'm not sure she'd be the Secretary of Treasury or um, or Commerce. So I don't think she'd take Commerce. Uh, I think there's a lot of things she thinks she might be able to do. I don't think VP is in the cards because we're too small a state, Rhode Island, and we're almost always blue. So it just doesn't make sense for a Democratic nominee in a tight race to pick somebody who's not going to bring some geographic balance to the ticket. So I'm not sure that that will fly. But again, this gives her a national uh, platform beyond the Democratic Governors Association and exposes her to a lot of people in the business community. And if she wants to make a run for president in 2024 oh. or run for <laughs> VP or even run for Senate, uh, you know, eventually if Sheldon Whitehouse or Jack Reed decides to retire, I think it gives her a lot of national options. And it's a, it's a smart move now, presuming, as I'm presuming, that she's consulted a lot of her colleagues and they see not enough support for Bernie. And, you know, also Bloomberg can spend more money, more money than Trump because Trump can't possibly raise the kind of money Bloomberg's willing to spend. He's raising a lot, Trump, but there's just a limit. Um, and, Tr- and Bloomberg will spend, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And that's, you know, that's frightening. That's really frightening. It's frightening for Trump. So, you know, we'll see how that goes, how that plays out. And it may be that Bloomberg would be willing to take a VP. I mean, you never know. I mean, he's 77. He's got a lot of money. Why not be VP? See how it goes. Maybe he, he cuts a deal. You know, I don't think it could be a Sanders-Bloomberg ticket. I think that would be a little weird. It'd be wild. <laughs> It'd be wild. But you could see a Buttigieg-Bloomberg or a Klobuchar-Bloomberg. You know, who knows? But if that's the case, then you get Bloomberg's money. For the Democrats, and that becomes something we all have to pay attention to. And the election is a long way out. There's one last thing to close with. If you look at Gallup approval ratings for presidents from Harry Truman, and I think we've talked about this before, all the way to uh, Barack Obama, and you look at their approval ratings in January, even February, and you look at whether they won or lost, there's no correlation. So even though the president's celebrating, he should take a victory lap on his uh, hitting almost hitting 50% in Gallup. It just doesn't predict anything for November. Dr. Schiller, we'll do it again maybe after Super Tuesday. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. All right, thanks. Love hearing from you. You can send me an email anytime, bill at ripodcast.com. That's bill at ripodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. Talk soon. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast.